Welcome back to Words and Movies. I hope you had a good break. I did have fun, but now I want to go home. <laughs> so it's time now for uh, Claude to give us the plot description for Love and Mercy. Yes, this film takes place in two different times, speci ooh, specifically the 1960s and the late 1980s. And while the film jumps back and forth again, I'm going to stick with one story at a time. So in the 1960s, we start off with scenes of the Beach Boys in the studio recording their music, doing publicity shots, and so on. And at a party, we have Brian Wilson, who's played by Paul Dano in the 1960s. Uh, he tells his brothers that he doesn't want to go on tour with them this time, but he wants to stay home writing music and working in the studio. And they agree to let him do this. Now, he assures them it's going to be great. He plays part of God Only Knows for his father, who is their former manager before he was fired. Brian wants him to tell them the truth, but the father just tells him the song isn't good. In the studio, Brian is working with the Wrecking Crew. That's the common name for this particular bunch of studio musicians. They do some work on Wouldn't It Be Nice and God Only Knows, and they all agree that he is, in fact, a musical genius. However, when the other band members return home and begin recording, his cousin Mike Love, who is played by Jacob Bell, is, about, is the one to stand up and say, that the music isn't good, it's mostly the other musicians playing instruments, and they hardly do anything at all. He's not happy with Brian. So they have more strife as time goes on. Brian and the other band members, aside from Mike, are heavily into drugs and LSD, and Brian begins hearing voices, and eventually his music and his lyrics don't appear to make sense on the surface. During one session, after they all got high, he goes to the piano and he plays some chords for Mike, which is the genesis of the song Good Vibrations. The recording session for Good Vibrations is tense because Brian has a very specific sound in his head and he's having a difficult time conveying it to the musicians. Later at a dinner party with his wife and his friends, they're celebrating the success of the song when he has himself an episode. And this is really well done because we get the sounds of the utensils just getting louder and louder and louder and it finally just pushes him over the edge. His brothers are worried about him as he lays practically comatose in a chair on the balcony. One day in August of 1969, the, and, and we're in the studio, Brian's father comes in and tells him he's sold all of the music rights for $750,000, reasoning that the band would be all but forgotten in about five years. And toward the end of this story, we see that Brian has a complete breakdown and stays in bed for what we learn later on is nearly three years. So, in the 1980s, Brian, who is now played by John Cusack, goes to a Cadillac dealership and he meets Melinda Ledbetter, who's played by Elizabeth Banks. She's a car saleswoman. He acts very strange. He tells her, like, he wants the car right from the showroom. And she doesn't know who he is at first, but then his doctor and guardian, Dr. Eugene Landy, played by Paul Giamatti, shows up and tells her. After he leaves, she discovers that Brian left her a note reading, Lonely. Scared frightened. Brian calls Melinda and asks her out on a date, and when he picks her up, it turns out he's accompanied by Gene, his bodyguard, and their entourage. In fact, they are there whenever they go out together. One night at dinner, Brian tells Melinda about how his father used to beat him, and it caused him to be mostly deaf in one ear. Another time, they go to his house in Malibu on the beach, and he plays her a tune that he just wrote for her in that moment. They seem like they're about to kiss, and they're interrupted again by Gene, telling him he has to take his medication. They go outside to eat hamburgers, and Brian, who is highly medicated, keeps saying how hungry he is. Gene yells at him and tells him that Melinda has to eat first. 
She takes one bite, and then Brian takes the rest, which she kind finds kind of funny, but Jean intervenes, screaming at Brian. She goes to visit Jean, who tells her that Brian is a paranoid schizophrenic and he has to take care of him. Jean is out of control, but there's not a lot that she can do because he's the legal guardian. On another date, they go on the boat without Jean, but his son is driving the boat, so they're still being monitored. So for some privacy, they jump off the boat into the water and they swim to shore. They make love, and after a few hours, Brian freaks out, saying she has to leave the house, but not his life because of Jean coming over. Melinda goes to see him one day, and he is completely out of it. He's drugged out of his mind, sitting on a piano bench. Gloria, the housekeeper, pulls her aside and he shows her and, and shows her a gigantic jar of pills that she stole because Jean gives him way too much. Everyone is afraid of Jean, though, and Jean comes out and tells Melinda she can't see him anymore. One of the people who travels with Jean and Brian goes to see Melinda. He tells her that Brian wants to see her away from Jean. So he takes her to the studio where Brian is waiting. She tells him he can just walk out of there because Jean is trying to get him to record an album and away from Jean. Unfortunately, just before they go, Jean shows up. Brian decides he can't do it after all, and she leaves. Melinda meets with Gloria and tells her that she loves Brian very much, but she can't be selfish and want to be with him. However, she can't leave him in that house with Jean either. She tells Gloria that she needs something on Jean so that they can get him away from him. Gloria finds the power of attorney paperwork and last will and testament, which has been manipulated by him. Melinda calls Brian's mother and talks to his brother Carl, telling them how Brian needs them. He hasn't talked to them in three years or his daughter in two, as poor Jean's orders. Jean shows up at the car dealership to verbally attack Melinda and he is served with court papers while he's there. He then does verbally attack her through the office door, but... He backs down when she takes the aggressive option of opening the door. We don't see any of the legal proceeding, but we do get to see Brian alone in his home and actually stepping outside to take a walk down the street. Coincidentally, Melinda is driving to an appointment nearby, and, he, and she almost hits Brian when he crosses against the light. They talk, and he convinces her to drive him to see his childhood home. However, when they get there we see that it has been turned into a highway, which he didn't know about. He tells her that Jean is gone and he wants to be with her. She asks him what comes next, and the last of their dialogue is inaudible as Wouldn't It Be Nice plays. Finally, we get some end titles telling us that Jean had his license revoked and Brian had been wrongfully diagnosed and is now getting proper treatment. Brian and Melinda married in 1995 and they have five children, and Pet Sounds has finally gotten its critical due from fans. Along with the closing credits, we get footage of the real Brian Wilson performing Love and Mercy in concert. Okay, so whereas I was primed to see I'm Not There because I am a, a big Bob Dylan fan. I've become one over the years. Love and Mercy, I have to admit, I was a little unsure about. Now, I lived in California knew a lot of people who loved surfing, and yet it took me a long time to get into the Beach Boys. Uh, I don't know. Um, well, that, that's, not, of, that's not unusual, considering there was a comment during the film that, that surfers don't really like the Beach Boys. No, that's true. But I, as I said, I knew a lot of surfers. I didn't say I was one. Okay. But um, part of that... I have to admit is, you know, like I think a lot of um, people in the United States who uh, are taught that there are a lot of men, I should say, in the United States who are taught that certain things are 
quote unquote unmanly. You know, I did have a hard time accepting falsetto voices by men, which you do hear a lot of in all of the Beach Boys songs. And it's not just them. I had a hard time getting into the Four Seasons as well for that very same reason. What about Elton John? I don't know. I think for some reason I was able to divorce that from him. Maybe because I heard his later stuff first. I don't know. Okay. But anyway, um, also, you know, the fact that for me anyway, the, the songs that they became known for and they became loved for... Um, and the opening credits of the movie is sort of a montage of a medley of a lot of their most well-known songs from that time, including stuff like Fun, 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 uh, California Girls, and Surfing USA, and things like that. To me, those songs were like the uh, song that, like the line that Debbie Reynolds has about uh, Gene Kelly's movies in Singing in the Rain. You heard one, you heard them all. <laughs> and it wasn't until later in the life that I got to appreciate that music a little more. But quite frankly, it wasn't until Pet Sounds that I did get to appreciate the Beach Boys uh, because I could hear when I was listening to that album what the Beatles, particularly Paul McCartney, loved about the band. Uh, Pet Sounds was the album that inspired McCartney to uh, tell the band members uh you know, we should do an album better than this. And that led to Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. So it was Loop John B, in, which is an older song that the Beach Boys rewrote, or I should say Wilson rewrote. That in particular was the song that made me sit up and take notice of the Beach Boys for the first time. And then hearing things like God Only Knows, which is a song that's been used in a couple of uh, movies, uh, memorably. Uh, the first movie I remember it being in was uh, Boogie Nights. Uh, those two songs were the ones that made me a fan of the music after all. How about you, Claude? Were you a Beach Boys fan or an agnostic? <laughs> I, no, I have to say, I was kind of a Beach Boys fan, like around fifth grade, I think. And that's when there were a couple of compilations albums that came out um, as part of the whole nostalgia thing that, that American Graffiti launched. And so um, their label was a capital uh, released a couple of, of, of albums. Uh, the, the one title I remember was Endless Summer. There was another one also. It was also a double album. And there was a friend of mine and, and I, we would spend a lot of time sitting there and just listening to those two albums. And, and they were both doubles, so there's really four LPs going on there. And so, you know, I, I kind of liked and appreciated the, the basic sound of, of the Beach Boys. I, you know, I wouldn't call myself a super fan or anything like that, but I kind of dug it. And then, yeah, you get a little bit older and a little 
little bit more sophisticated. You move away from it. So I had to come back to to Pet Sounds and and to really appreciate that. So it was like I listened to it. And I was like, okay, this is pretty good, and and didn't really think about it too deeply until several years later when I came back to have a deeper appreciation. And as it turns out, like they they talk about, they refer to it during the film a couple of times. The album Smile, which never happened, uh, really. Um, it did finally come out. There's something in the end notes about how Smile came out. Um, Wilson did it as a solo project in uh, 2004. He kind of finished up what he had. And then there was another thing that came out just a couple of years ago called uh, the Smile Sessions, which is a little bit more Beach Boys sounding. And I kind of like that one a little bit better, even though Wilson himself is uh, is partial to the 2004 version. So, you know, as a fan, I've kind of come and gone and come back again. Well, the 2004 one is the one I remember most because the two of the managers at the video store at the time loved that and played that a lot. And also there was a DVD that came out of Wilson performing <laughs> the smile um songs and they would play that a lot as well and that's where i also got to see the documentary uh made about wilson called i just wasn't made for these times which is another song off of pet sounds and which is also worth checking out now as with i'm not there Obviously, Love and Mercy uses two different actors to play Brian Wilson. And unlike I'm Not There, where the only actor, I think, who physically resembles Dylan is Kate Blanchett. Although you could argue that um, Robbie Clark or Heath Ledger does sort of physically resemble him in the 70s. But uh, Paul Dano uh, does sort of resemble Brian Wilson from the 60s time. And um, John Cusack does resemble um, Wilson from how he was in the 80s, or at least after he had lost the weight Mm -hmm. or a little of the weight that he had uh, put on after um, his uh, drug abuse. And even if you don't think they physically resemble Wilson so much, this is a good example, I think, of casting against type. Because Paul Dano, of course, became known for the portrait of the uh, silent, resentful kid he plays in Little Miss Sunshine, and then also Eli Sunday in uh, There Will Be Blood, where he's playing this um, fervent fundamentalist and ultimately corrupt preacher. And both of those movies and in subsequent roles you have him playing this real crazed personality. So having him here play this very sweet, fragile person, you know, I think really works. Because even when he's getting 
deeper and more deeply um, unbalanced. You know, he doesn't go for that really, those really crazed, freaked out actions. The way he freaks out is more subdued and again, makes you want to pat him on the shoulder and say, it's okay, it's okay, instead of, you know, backing off, like, get away from me. Um, so I think he really works in that role. Plus, he does a little of his own singing here. Mm-hmm. You know, he is dubbed over a few in a few places, but he does his own singing in a few places as well. And he sounds maybe not as good as the real Wilson, but he sounds a little... A, little like him so i think that really yeah and and um he was like 30 around the time that he that he made this film and but he still got a little bit of the baby face and i think part of that is because he also had to work pretty hard to just put on weight for the role and that kind of filled out his face a little bit and you know he got himself a little bit of a belly um you know supposedly he had to like just consume like thousands of calories a day to be able to put on the weight because he's naturally kind of a skinny guy and and i think that also helped just to give him a little bit of a younger look as as well because he still got those big cheeks going on and and whatever else but he he really did carry off the role really well and 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 cusack as well i mean uh i don't necessarily think he looked as much like wilson as uh as as dano did uh, you know whether past or future but um he still carried off a lot of the mannerisms and so i I definitely bought into it. And I think it's kind of interesting to note that, you know, a, well, of course, because they're taking place, you know, 20 odd years apart that they never share any screen time together, but supposedly they never really talked to each other about how to perform the character. So they were each bringing their own little thing to Brian Wilson. Right. And I think that is crucial as well, because, you know, sometimes when you have, um, a young, when you have a movie where you have a young version of a role and then an older version of a role, sometimes it seems like one of the actors is copying the other. Yeah. Um, and that can be distracting, but you don't have that here. But there's another reason why I think Cusack's uh, casting works so well. Um, the movie we talked about with Cusack in the previous episode, High Fidelity, was, for me, um, the high watermark of his career until Love and Mercy came out. After that, after High Fidelity came out, I think Cusack became sort of a drift in his career. There were movies that he did that weren't bad, Uh, so much as missed opportunities. And I'm thinking of things like Identity Mm -hmm. and Runaway Jury and Grace is Gone, where actually in that movie, he was overshadowed by the two actresses playing his daughters, who were both brilliant. And then uh, War Inc., which is a semi-sequel to Gross Point Blank, which was one of his best movies, but this was a total miss. <laughs> but a lot of the movie... And then um, Lee Daniels' The Butler, which is a missed opportunity, although not really his fault. Uh, but a lot of the movies that he did during this period went straight to DVD, 
or um, straight to video on demand. And so he, it really felt like he was flailing along. So, you know, he could understand a little better, I think, um, the older Brian Wilson, considering that during that time, the older Brian Wilson was flailing along. But also, in his best movies, and even in the movies that I think were missed opportunities, you always saw an energy to his performances. You know, I'm thinking especially of uh, Lloyd Dobler and Say Anything, Mm -hmm. but also in Gross Point Blank and High Fidelity. You know, you really got a sense that he was going at a faster pace than anyone else, that he had so much energy and passion that he was bringing to the roles that really lifted up his performances. And at the same time, would like have outsiders thinking this guy is so neurotic. And that's really what we needed out of Brian Wilson was that neurosis. But that's not the only thing. Yeah. When you first see him in the um, car lot that Melinda Ledbetter is uh, working at, you know, he looks so lost Mm -hmm. and so sapped of energy. And, you know, obviously, if you know the story of Wilson's life, you know that's what he was like at the time. But to see Cusack playing him like that, you know, it does give you a stab in the heart mm-hmm. that you might not get from another actor playing him because you associate Cusack with someone who is very different from that. And that I think, uh, that I think really helps in those sequences. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I buy that, you know, there's, there's, there's neuroses and then there's neuroses and, <laughs> You know, and so he does carry off that same neurotic type of energy. And at the same time, you know, we're taking it in a little bit of a different direction. It's, it's come, I shouldn't say we're taking it in. It's, it's coming from a different direction and, and you do buy into it and you do feel for the guy. Sure. Now, um, we should mention as well, the actor who played Murray Wilson, um, Brian's father was Bill Camp, who we have discussed before. Uh, he was in Molly's Game as the guy who, you know, played poker while everyone was gambling until he uh, got bluffed by Bad Brad and just hit a bad streak. And he really commits to the cruelty of Murray Wilson, even though we don't see him actually hitting Brian in any of the 60s scenes, you know, from his performance, we really believe him that believe that he would have been capable of physically abusing. Certainly we see the mental abuse, particularly the fact that, you know, he never compliments the young Brian Wilson on anything he does. As a matter of fact, he brings in a song that was done by a uh, Beach Boys uh, knockoff band 
just to twist the knife in, as it were, towards Brian Wilson. And he does a really good job of uh, doing that. Bill Camp does, I think. Yeah, he does. He's great at that casual cruelty kind of thing. And and in fact, in that scene that you're talking about, it's it's really almost kind of sort of the closest he comes to a compliment when he says, well, that guy sounds just like Brian. And that's, that's, about as, that's about as good as it's ever gotten, probably. Right. Now, we should talk about Mike Love here a moment. Now, certainly, if you'll pardon the expression, I have no great love for him huh. uh, because he's uh, become quite a bit of a reactionary. And um, if you ever want to see cringe comedy at its finest, uh, do yourself a favor and look on YouTube for the speech that he made when the Beach Boys were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Oh boy, it is a beauty. And uh, because, you know, basically he gets up and starts out by saying nice things, but then he uh, insults the hell out of everybody. And as I said, it is cringe comedy at its finest. Uh, and then uh, Elton John, uh, who, who is the one who inducted the band into the Hall of Fame, um, after Love had uh, done his speech, you know, he got up and said, thank bleep he didn't mention me. <laughs> Which, uh, but anyway, having said all of that, what I do think the movie does a good job of presenting, even though it does make him out to be one of the villains, is part of the reason why Love was so dead set against Pet Sounds and the whole direction that Brian was trying to take the band in was not just the fact that Unlike Wilson, he was completely divorced from a lot of the 60s scene, the drug references, although he was very much into the Maharishi and that whole trip. But also the fact that all the songs that the Beach Boys had done together were songs uh, before that were songs that the band had done together. Mm -hmm. And this was Wilson striking out on his own and love didn't like it. And he said so. And the fact of the matter of a band where one person is the main songwriter has driven apart more bands than anything else. Uh, if the one person is the songwriter in the band and the one person who is getting the credit for the success and then also the money, that fuels a lot of resentments in bands. And that happens here. And I think the movie does a good job portraying that. Yeah, I, I I think so. I mean, they don't get too deeply into the into the whys as far as you know that there's money involved and and so forth. But 
you know, the, the fact is this was, this wasn't like, let's say the Beatles where you had like a Lennon and McCartney kind of thing. And the work was kind of trading back and forth early on. And maybe later on turned into a little bit of a rivalry between the two. Although what we've learned from watching the, um, the, the recent uh, documentary about the Beatles is that it was a lot, still a lot more collaborative than we were originally led to believe, but it was still pretty much, right. you know, Paul had his thing, John had his thing, but they were still able to put it together and, you know, make some magic there. And even as they morphed into a studio band, there was still a whole lot of collaboration there. Whereas opposed to, you know, the Beach Boys, where Wilson was pretty much the heart of almost everything and he and 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 it's spelled out in in the film that you know he learned some things and he taught them to different members of the family and then he brought in other members of the family and taught it to them so he was really always at the at the base of where it was at now you know all that said i guess there has been a little bit of patching up because nowadays if you you know hear the beach boys on tour it's mostly like kind of mike love and company rather than any of the wilson's who are really involved in that kind of thing. But it, it's, it does make sense that, you know, if this is what got us to where we are, then why are we moving away from it? And that's a scary place to be from. So, you know, it's, it's kind of understandable that, that there is a change and that they are becoming a little bit more of a studio band rather than, you know, everybody in the place at one time. And, and, you know, that is a, a big shift in the way things operated, but also leads me to believe that like, well, hey, Mike, weren't you in on the conversation before when when we said, look, Brian's going to stay here and work in the studio and then we're all going to come in later and it's going to be fantastic. So was he left out of the early decisions? Eh, we don't really know in that case. Well, then there's also the fact that, you know, why are you bringing in another guy to help write the songs? Uh, Van Dyke Parks. Mm -hmm. Why are you bringing in this outsider uh, who is uh, in love's estimation that we see in the film talking a lot of nonsense? Now, um, let, now love is, of course, one of the villains portrayed in the movie. But the bigger villain is, of course, Eugene Landy. But the interesting thing about the movie, even though um, Landy does a lot of despicable things here, is that the movie does what, I th what we've talked about on numerous occasions in uh, the movies that we've discussed portraying villains, is that they portray Landy, Giamatti especially, less as a villain and more as someone who believes his own publicity. You know, the fact of the matter is, when um, Wilson was floundering in the 70s, um, when uh, Wilson's first wife was looking for help for dealing with them, someone in the band, I think, did originally recommend Landy, and he did get Wilson off of drugs both times because he was fired at first and then came back in the 80s. He did help him lose weight, and he did get him recording again. But... Not only did he misdiagnose him as a paranoid schizophrenic, he believed that he was Wilson's guru. 
and as such believed that he was the only one who could help Wilson and no one was allowed to penetrate his inner circle without his say-so. You don't really see this in the movie, but uh, Wilson's daughters and his ex-wife were estranged from him by this point because of Landy's influence on Wilson's life. And it wasn't until he Wilson met Melinda and Melinda and others, and I'm going to get to this in just a moment, um, were able to pry Wilson away from Landy's influence that he was really able to get on the road of becoming better. And again, while, as I said, we do see Landy doing some pretty despicable things here, you know, he believes he's not the devil. He believes he's actually helping Wilson this way. And that in a sense, makes him all the more terrifying. This is not the first guru figure that, or this is not the only guru figure that Giamatti played in a music biopic that came out that year. That year also saw the release of Straight Outta Compton, where he played the manager of NWA. And again, he does the same thing, playing someone who believes in his head and his heart that he's got the band's best interests at heart, but what he's really doing is something more destructive. And in that movie, but I think better here, Giamatti plays that very well. Yeah, he does. You know, the, uh, if I had any complaints about Giamatti, it would be it would be the hair, man. I I, I just he just has to stop wearing. These, these bad, bad wigs. I don't know what's, what's going I get so distracted sometimes when he, when he's got on a piece that has his hair looking longer than it is. Uh, but, but yeah, he, he does it really well. And he's definitely a guy who's just convinced that, you know, he is the be all end all as far as, uh, Brian's health and well being is concerned. And, and so he doesn't, so he does. Yeah. So he's, he's not, he's not a menacing guy exactly but you know there's clearly something not quite right with this picture and it is something that that melinda picks up pretty quickly that that you know this guy maybe has a little bit more influence than possibly he ought to right now um speaking of melinda one main complaint about the movie and i will accept this is that the movie does overstate a little how much Melinda was involved in getting Brian out of the clutches from under the clutches of Landy or should I or I should rather say that they make it seem like she was the only one when she was not um, and it wasn't just the housekeeper who helped her out in that regard. And it wasn't just members of Landy's uh, entourage who were uncomfortable with what Landy was doing and helped her. Carl Wilson was also instrumental in helping free his brother from out under the clutches of uh, Landy. And yet he's barely mentioned in the movie uh, the only, uh, or at least not in the uh, 80s sequence, mm-hmm. the only real mention we get, I think there's a phone call between Melinda and him where we only see Melinda's side 
of the conversation. So yes, I can fault the movie for that. But on the other hand, the forcefulness of Elizabeth Banks' performance here, and she was someone who up to that point I had liked in movies, but never she was never someone who I would say, oh, if she's in this movie okay, that means I'm going to watch it. But she is just terrific here, um, giving us the love that she has for Wilson, the anger that she has towards Landy, and then, the, as I said, the forcefulness of personality that drives her to take action to get Wilson away from Landy. She does all of that just amazingly well here yeah she 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 does it well i don't you know here's the thing is like you you have to choose a perspective when you're doing films like this and i i think we it, it at least carried across enough that you know she cared she wanted to do something she tried to get something done and at the same time she just didn't have enough of an, an of, of an ability to take some sort of action part of it was that she didn't really know what to do and part of it was just a matter of look i'm just like you know a potential girlfriend i'm not family i'm not anything like that and so you know she had to yeah there, there was the phone call to to carl and and i think she called it another another relative at one point too a little bit early in the film but but yeah so she looks like kind of like the 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 tool that kind of brings everything together but once she has made that phone call to carl we're kind of skipping over a whole lot of stuff and and what we get from the scene where she nearly runs Brian over with her car is that she hasn't been very involved at all since the lawsuit started and, and that she's been kind of out of the picture for a little while. And we don't really know how long, but clearly some time has gone by. So, you know, it, it might have just been a little bit of, you know, well, we've got to cut the story down. Look, the movie's already over two hours long and we've got to do something here. And, and so there's only so much of the story that you can you can tell, and you're going to have to concentrate on you know what's truly important. I think I get that, but as I said, I would have liked to see maybe just a little more mention of Carl in the '80s stuff than just a phone call. Okay, but anyway, now let's talk about the technical aspects of the movie. Mm. One one scene you already brought up, the scene where um, Brian, uh, in the 60s scenes, where Brian is um, at having dinner with his family and with uh, all the members of the band, and he starts hearing voices and sounds and all of that. Uh, credit for that sequence uh, can go to Atticus Ross, hmm. who was not only the music supervisor, but also um, was in charge of the sound effects on that scene. And in other sequences uh, during the 60s, he's used his sound effects and uh, music montage to help create uh, Brian's state of mind. And especially in that sequence, as you pointed out, it's really effective, uh, effective way of showing how... Um, deeply uh, disturbed Brian has uh, become. Also, in um, the scene in the pool, I think there's a portion where he goes underwater and 
you can sort of hear a lot of sounds there as well. Again, yeah. that's uh, Atticus Ross is uh, doing, and it's really effective. Yeah, that would that would be the scene where we first start seeing some of the uh, the, the complaints from Mike Love about the rest of the uh, you know about what's happening and with the, with the band. And correct me if I'm wrong, Atticus Ross has also paired up with Trent Reznor on a couple of soundtracks, has he not? Yeah. Okay. Uh, including for um, so well, they're both including for The Social Network, yeah, one of the movies we've already discussed, and uh, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, mm-hmm. and um, I think Mank they did as well. Oh, okay. Uh, but together, and maybe a couple other movies that weren't directed by David Fincher. But anyway, um, one thing that Love and Mercy has in common with I'm Not There is that there are a few sequences in this movie that are um, homages to other movies. Uh, the sequence where they're recording good vibrations, or rather I should say they're attempting to record good vibrations because there's one... um, there's one effect that Brian is trying to get in the movie, the ka 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 thing, and Mike Love is saying, they've already got it! You know, <laughs> they've been getting it for the last hour or so. You know, that whole thing. There's a 360-degree shot that uh, Bill Paul did and the cinematographer of the movie who was uh, Robert Yeoman. Yeoman. Um, That whole sequence is a homage to uh, Jean-Luc Godard's movie about uh, the Rolling Stones called One Plus One, uh, also known as Sympathy for the Devil. There are a lot of sequences of Godard recording, uh, shooting the band recording that song that are done in a 360-degree angle. And then also near the end of the movie, when the young Wilson is in bed and we morph from the younger Wilson to the older Wilson, and then we see him watching himself and then watching um, other members of his family as they sort of wave to him or look at him, um, that is reminiscent of a sequence in a movie we're going to be talking about in a few episodes from now, Pink Floyd, The Wall, the comfortably numb sequence. But also when he sees, uh, when he's in bed and he's seeing a younger version of himself and then an older version of himself, uh, Paul Bad in the commentary for the movie admitted that that sequence was stolen from the um, end sequence of 2001 A Space Odyssey. Yeah, that's what I flashed on. Yeah, well, I think it's a combination of both of them. Mm -hmm. So although Paul Dad was known mostly as a producer up to this point, um, he had produced uh, one of Terrence Malick's movies, I believe, Um, He wasn't really known as a director, per se. He was just a fan of the band. But he had uh, produced uh, 12 Years a Slave. And yes, as I said, uh, The Tree of Life, um, one of my all-time favorite movies. Uh, That's a Malick movie. 
and also um, an earlier movie about the Chicago 7 called uh, Chicago 10. But I think he does overall a good job directing the movie, handling the tonal shifts, and then also uh, something that's seamlessly done. Uh, he and Yeoman uh, shoot some of the early uh, 1960s sequences on 16 millimeter and blow them up, uh, particularly um, a music video type sequence that we get to one of the songs from Pet Sounds with uh, Wilson and his brothers, you know, one, each, each of them are walking by Wilson and then uh, another, uh, another Brian Wilson comes by and walks by and they're seeing the two of them together. That's an effectively done sequence. Yeah, actually, I thought that was uh, that was very um, Hard Day's Night-esque, actually, to, yes. in my head. Yeah. Yes. And I but, didn't realize that the early stuff was shot in 16 millimeter. I thought it was or I, I thought maybe it was just um, just just meant to emulate 16. So that that's interesting. Yeah, so is there anything else that you want to mention before we wrap this up? Just a couple of things that actually tie the two films together in, in addition to the, like, you know, the the type of subject matter and the way they approach it is both of these scenes have I'm sorry, both of these films have a scene that takes place in a diner or a restaurant of some kind and the two are talking these two characters who are basically the main characters of their sequence are having a pretty deep conversation and in both instances there is a mirror going on near like behind the people speaking so that you can actually see the other person talking as they're talking and i thought that was kind of interesting is that we're getting these reflections of each other as they are expressing their their pieces and i just thought that was a a neat little thing i was like i noticed it in the diner sequence in um it was in it was in uh uh, it was in, I'm sorry, you're going to give me a second. I, I think it was in the Jack Rollins scene in, no, no, no. Um, it was, it was in the, in the Heath Ledger's, in Robbie's scene, a se sequence. There was a scene in the diner, okay, where he first meets up with Claire and they are talking to one another and there's just mirrors everywhere in that one. And then also in the diner where you have the John Cusack, Brian Wilson, and he's explaining stuff about his childhood and how his father used to beat him. And he's talking about like, he's, he's demonstrating with his hands and how, how they used to get beaten. And there are shots that are taken basically over Cusack's shoulder, looking at Elizabeth Banks, but you can see not only Cusack in this one image, but the mirror itself is kind of beveled on the edges. So what you get is multiple images of Cusack. So now we've got this, like, not only is Wilson being reflected, but he's being fragmented at the same time. And I was like, that's kind of cool. And then the other thing that the two films, I, I think it's just coincidentally have in common is that they, they both end with actual footage of the musician being portrayed, you know, and, and performing, which was kind right. of a neat little, neat little thing. Right. And that whole diner sequence in I'm Not There is part of um, Todd Haynes's Godard homage. That's, uh, as I said, that was uh, inspired by masculine feminine. Mm -hmm. So 
This is the part of the uh, episode where we tell you that currently uh, both I'm Not There and Love and Mercy are available on DVD. But if you really are hardcore streamer, um, I'm Not There is available to stream through Roku, Tubi, Pluto TV and Red, Redbox and Vudu if uh, you're willing to put up with the ads. And then also Hoopla, if you're lucky enough uh, that your local library subscribes to it. And then also can be rent or bought through most of uh, the other streaming services. While Love and Mercy is currently available to stream through HBO, HBO Max, Spectrum, and DirecTV and is also available to rent or buy through most of the usual suspects of streaming services. I'm going to note that I saw I'm Not There through, uh, what was it, through Pluto TV. And while they are pretty good about like coming back exactly where they, where they left off with the commercials and so forth, they are just also not especially good at picking good times to break into commercials. So there are a few instances where... You know, something is about to happen and all of a sudden you're in the commercial and you've got to wait for it to come back. That was kind of a. Well, that's uh, why, as I said, you should uh, (laughs) try and get physical media if you can. I only got so much budget here, man. (laughs) Now I know I have the DVDs for both of these. And uh, coming up next. Yes. We're going to Dublin. Well, figuratively speaking, Mm. anyway, uh, because we're going to talk about two rock music movies that are set in Dublin from 1991, The Commitments, directed by Alan Parker, and from 2007, Once, written and directed by John Carney. Now, The Commitments is available to rent or buy through Amazon, Vudu, Apple TV, Redbox, and uh, other streaming services, while Once is available to stream if you subscribe to Cinemax Go, which I believe is part of HBO Max, but I'm not entirely sure. But it is also able... Um, also you can rent or buy that through Apple TV, Amazon, and most of the other usual suspects. Mm -hmm. And if you have a question or comment, you can, um, comment on our Facebook page or you can email us. Uh, Our Facebook page is words and movies. And, uh, you could also email us. Um, our email address is words and movies pod at gmail.com. And you can find me, Sean Gallagher on Facebook, but as of yet, I am still only lurking on Instagram. You can find me on the Twitter machine under my own name, Claude Call, or you can check out my other podcast, How Good It Is, at howgooditis.com. And our show also has a Twitter page as well. Yes, uh, words underscore movies pod. Okay, so thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next time. Thank you very much, Rebecca. Please take us away. This is your announcer, Rebecca Blackman, with the closing credits. This show was produced by Sean Gallagher and Claude Call, with editing and post-production by Claude, with some help from Ophonic. Audio clips are used under fair use rules for commentary and educational framing. Everything else is copyrighted by Claude Call and Sean Gallagher. 
The theme music you're bopping along to right now is by Solar Flare and is used under a Creative Commons license. Podcast hosting is provided by Anchor.fm. If you want to support the show, go to anchor.fm slash wordsandmovies and click on the support link. Who knows, maybe they'll even kick a few bucks my way. Thanks for listening.